you would take your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. As you turn there, just as a, as a reminder from last week, so we turned our attention to a new series, Working Our Way, through the I Am Statements of Jesus, uh, recognizing that uh, a great and ongoing need that we have, all of God's people uh, need to know and understand Christ in the fullness of the revelation He has given. And while there are a lot of ways we could explore that, uh, there, there is certainly a profound truth to be gleaned as we work our way through seven statements that Jesus made. They are recorded for us in the Gospel of John, where He uses seven different metaphors to identify a number of things about Himself. Uh, his full divinity... He is the one who then exclusively can save, and He is also the one who provides ongoing nourishment to the people of God. And so each of these statements uh, reflects on, on these elements of Christ and His ministry to us. And this morning, uh, we will begin working our way through them by beginning to look at the first one. John chapter 6, verse 22. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there, except that one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, however, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. And then they said to Him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered them, said, This is the work of God. You believe in him whom he has sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. I have a question for you this morning. See if you could answer this question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but I'm just wondering how many in here could answer the question, 
What did you have for dinner last night? Most? Okay, yeah, all right. How about this one? What did you have for lunch the day before? Little trickier, right? Okay, how about this? Tell me everything you ate last Monday. How about that? All right? Now you're thinking, nope, Pastor, that's it. All right, you had me on the first one, kind of on the second, but after that, nope, don't know that. All right, let's turn that question around a different direction. How many of you know what you're going to eat for lunch? All right, okay. Yeah, it's funny. That's the, that's the biggest number of hands, all right? But yeah, I know exactly what I'm having for lunch. Now, you may wonder, why are you asking these questions? It's bad enough. This happens right before lunch, and now you've just made us hungry. You know, there's a specific way I ask the question. I asked you, what did you eat, or what will you eat? Notice I didn't ask you, if you will eat. I didn't ask, did you eat yesterday, or the day before, or last Monday? You notice I didn't even ask, are you going to eat lunch? I didn't ask the question if you would do it. I assume that you will. You see, because for us and in our circumstances, you know, food, it is something we think a lot about, right? But for different reasons and in different ways than a lot of people in the world today. In fact, it is estimated that somewhere around 825 million to 850 million people would, in fact, need to be asked and answer the second question rather than the first. That it would not be, what did you eat? But the question would be, did you eat? And in fact, going into any given day for about one in nine people in the world, that's what that averages out to be, about one in nine people in the world, in fact, are waking up today wondering about the next meal. Not what it will be, but will there be something? Now, that may not come really as a big surprise. I I know that the number is a big one, and and while the majority of those are located in various locations of Africa and Asia, they're still all over the world. There's even a population in our own country that, that that would be in that same category, not exactly sure where their next meal is coming from. We're aware of this, right? I mean, we're aware that there are those in the world that do deal with hunger. Their next meal is not necessarily a guarantee. In fact, we've seen commercials about this for decades, right? So much so that it's probably just a bit of noise at this point. We all know there's a lot you could do for just the cost of a cup of coffee a day, right? We've heard that many times. We recognize there are people in this world who are not experiencing life as you and I are experiencing life. And in fact, for most of the people in this room... Notice I'm not necessarily saying everyone, but for most of us, most of us have lived our lives probably without any concern whatsoever about where our next meal would come from. Again, that's not true for everybody. 
I do know that there are some folks uh, you know, who, who perhaps at various times in their lives, maybe that wasn't a guarantee. I, we've, I've talked with many of you, your stories throughout the years. I recognize that that may not always be the case, but, but I can tell you just speaking personally, there's never been a day in my life where I've ever wondered, am I going to get a meal? Now, you, you may ask, okay, pastor, why are you bringing this up? I mean, is this, one, you got us hungry and... Now you're making us feel guilty for being hungry, all right, and okay, so does this, you know, what does this mean? Do we fast at lunchtime? What are we supposed to do? Well, actually, that this whole idea of our next meal, this is a significant one because not only do we recognize there are people in this world who don't necessarily have a guarantee of the next meal, this is also true historically. A lot of humans have endured their lives with just this kind of concern, and this is for sure the case for a lot of folks in the first century who are hearing this teaching from Jesus. I mean, when we read this, we've heard this before. We've heard this language of Jesus being heavenly food. We've heard the phrase, Jesus is the bread of life. I mean, we recognize this, but perhaps we do not recognize the depth of this kind of image because you and I are not necessarily waking up each day wondering where we're going to eat. We know it's going to happen somewhere, somehow. For a lot of the folks in Jesus' day, this is the very thing. It's not that they're all necessarily at the point of being ready to starve to death, but they wake up every day really with one thing in their mind, what am I going to do today to feed myself and, my, and or my family? So it's not a surprise that, that when Jesus really wants to emphasize people's real needs, that he brings up an image like this. Because here's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to take this whole idea, this whole reality about the way a lot of people live, and he's going to turn it on its head, and he's going to fundamentally tell all these folks who give a lot of time to thinking about where the meal's going to come from, how they're going to get one the next day, how they're going to feed their family, and he's going to tell this multitude of people, you've got the wrong priorities. Where your next meal comes from is not your biggest concern. That Jesus is able to take such a common image of food, that which is necessary for life, and use it to illustrate to the people to whom he's talking their real need. And that need fundamentally being himself, that really far greater threat is presented to their lives, and it's not whether or not they're going to get enough food. The far greater threat is whether or not they're going to be able to stand before God. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to properly instruct them on what it is that they really need. And this first of the seven I am statements is going to draw on that imagery. Now, he's going to use the language of bread, but I would contend the language of bread is also you know, a metaphor to a large degree about food itself. Bread would have been the staple food that they would have eaten. They baked it every day. They ate it every day. For some of these people, it might have been all that they ate in a day. And so this is going to be a provocative image for Jesus to use. And clearly they're going to understand it because they're going to challenge him as he uses this language to talk about himself. 
So again, this morning, we turn our attention to this first of seven I am statements as we reflect on who Jesus is, his divinity, his saving work, and his ongoing provision for us. I'll go ahead and give you a little bit of a heads up. Uh, This is this one will take us a little bit longer to work our way through. One, because we're going to take an opportunity to really unpack some of these key ideas, and many of these ideas are repeated in the other six, and so we won't then unpack them again and again and again, but instead, as we get to the other six I am statements, we'll note some of the nuance then, the various images being used and the nuance of language and how it it just gives us a a fuller understanding of who Jesus is and how Jesus works. So, uh, we'll get to some of it this morning, and then we'll, you know, keep on going with this first one. So, John chapter 6, verses 22 through 71, Jesus is going to use the imagery of bread to assert He is the only means of true life. In fact, what He's going to do is emphasize this is far and away their greatest need. Which, by the way, Even before we get into a whole lot of preaching points, this is just a good one for us to always remember. Far and away, your greatest need is being rightly related to Jesus Christ. Believer, unbeliever, this is the most fundamental thing that needs to be right about us, period. All the other things may still be important, by the way. I don't want to downplay them. I just mean they're not the most important. This is most fundamental. Who Jesus is, my relationship to Him... And, and so, th- this is going to be asserted, I think, with clarity. So, we enjoy the fullness of Jesus' saving work, and we understand how it is that He is the bread of life. So, we're going to look at two critical aspects of it. We'll start by looking at the first one this morning, which is going to have more points in it, all right? So, what does it mean that Jesus is the bread of life? Well, Jesus as the bread means that He saves our life. Jesus saves our life. Really, it's a way of saying that we have no life without Him. That the only way to actually have life is to have Jesus. And then let's emphasize that then with even greater clarity. If you don't have Jesus, you're not alive. What, Pastor? Again, you had too long of a vacation, man. I don't know what that means because I know a lot of lost people that still got up today Yeah, see, you've made a mistake. You assume physical life is the most important kind of life. Oh, no, there's a lot of physically alive people who are very, very dead. I'm not making that up. That's Ephesians chapter 2. You are born dead in your trespasses and sin. I mean, the fact that Jesus is going to use bread and connect it with life, the, the reason why He's doing this is a way to emphasize I only have life if I have Jesus. So this is illustrated then in John chapter 6. Now, in order to get to verse 22, we need to run up to it a little bit, all right? John chapter 6, you know, I I never want to say that one part of the Bible is like more important than another, right? It's all God's Word, so it's all important. But we recognize that some passages come with a certain heft. They come with a certain weightiness, meatiness, because of the material that's in it. John chapter 6 is one of those chapters. I, I know this may shock you. 
I could take a really long time to work all the way through John chapter 6, all right? I could take until the next sabbatical to work through John chapter 6. It is that kind of a chapter, but don't worry, we're not going to do that. But I do want to make sure we understand the context of Jesus' assertion that he is the bread of life, because it begins, if you take your Bibles, look at the very beginning of John chapter 6. You'll see something very familiar, story that you recognize right away. It begins in verse 1, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. All right, so they saw Jesus healing people, and we're going to see the crowd is terrible at understanding the signs. They never get them right, all right? It's going to happen again, but John is priming us for this. So, so we, we already learn, okay, they've seen the signs and they want Jesus, but they want him for the wrong reasons. I mean, that's a pretty nifty trick. You want to talk about a health care plan, just have a guy that can heal you of all of your illnesses. That's really great, right? Especially if there's, I mean, if there's no copay or deductible, I mean, that'd be awesome to be able to just say, all right, yeah, great, but heal, great. And you're talking about some pretty wicked diseases. Okay, so they're coming to him. And so it says in verse 3, And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? So he's taking his disciples kind of up the mountain a little bit to get away. And as often is the case, the crowds follow. Jesus sees the multitudes coming, and he knows that he's going to have to engage them by multitudes. We know there's at least 5,000 people, men. And so it is then generally recognized that if it's 5,000 men, that there probably were women and children who came as well. I've heard estimates as high as 20,000 people coming, all right? So, mega church before mega church was cool, all right? So, Jesus was doing that without air conditioning or heat or pews uh, or a microphone, all right? So, or PowerPoint or any of that, all right? So, they're coming to him, and he turns to Philip. Don't you know Jesus loved doing stuff like this? He turned to Philip and said, where are we going to buy the bread to feed all these people? And, and Philip, you know, like any of the disciples, they, they didn't show the best awareness either, right? So, uh, but, but we know verse 6 tells us why he's doing this. He said, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do, all right? And Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. So keep in mind, a denarii was one day's wage. So we're talking about 200 days wage. We're talking about more than half a year salary. So we could we have a half year more's worth of salary, of money. And that's not even going to be enough to buy even a little morsel of food for them. Well, if you, if you were to keep reading the story, you, you know what happens. They, they find a lad, all right? So it's not a little bitty boy, but it's a, it's a young, uh, not, not, a, not an adult, okay? So somewhere in that middle, middle age, uh, it's, it's reckoned in... You know, late childhood years, because they would not have used the word lad, by the way, to describe a teenager. 
Interesting little tidbit. The Jewish perspective of life was there were two options. You were a child or an adult. Boy, I really want to preach a whole nother sermon, all right? So, man, that's a whole nother thing. All right, so we'll, we'll keep going. Okay, so this lad was, would have been an older child. He's, he's got some bread and some fish for himself, just enough for himself. And they say, well, we've got this, <laughs> but that's not enough. So what does Jesus do? Jesus tells him, sit everybody down. He organized this, by the way, make everybody sit down, find, find, find a place where, where there's grass and, and set everybody down accordingly. And then it says in verse 11, and Jesus took the loaves And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. How did he do it? I mean, it doesn't say. It's not, you know, it's not not like a magician, all right? This, This isn't any sleight of hand. He literally reproduced the physical material where there was only a couple of fish and some loaves. He multiplied them. I don't know what it would have looked like to their eyes. I don't know if it's he took those loaves and he just keeps tearing it off and tearing it off and tearing it off and tearing it off and tearing it off. I don't know. I don't know if after praying is all of a sudden are there, I mean, how many loaves would that take? How many fish would all of a sudden need to appear? This, this is an amazing act. And not only did they have food, they had food that filled them up. And not only did they have food to fill them up, they filled up 12 baskets full. Again, all of this was done as a test. Jesus is once again giving them a sign. Now, verse 14 then says this, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Not exactly. I mean, yeah, yes, but no. Now, you might say, well, Pastor, it seems like you're being kind of hard on them. I mean, they, they seem to get that this guy's a big deal. All right, well, just read the next verse. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. They don't really get it. What do they get? They get a guy who's got a great health care plan and who's a free grocery store. That's what they got. Sounds like, sounds like a great king to me, right? And if you've got a group of people who are spending every day of their lives worried about these threats, disease, and food. It's a profound sign. But this is not, this is not real. They, they don't get it. They think this is another David. This is David 2.0. This is David come to lead them back into their glory and splendor like in the Old Testament. And this is David better, able to do even things David couldn't do. So, so Jesus then goes away, all right? He goes up onto a mountain and, he, and the disciples get into a boat, and they make their way across the sea, right? Now, the people clearly see this. Now, in the midst of this, it's the middle of the night, guys are on a boat, middle of the sea, it says they're about three to four miles out, and a great wind blows up, 
And the, the, of course, there's this great storm, boat tossed around. It says they are, that, they're, that there's, there's fear among them. Verse 19 then says this. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. By the way, that phrase, it is I, guess what that's a form of? I am. I am he. Why would Jesus say this? I mean, why why would he even identify himself this way? It's not like there were a bunch of people out there walking on the water, right? It's not like they had to identify himself from all the other people that were walking across the sea. That's not what's happening. Jesus is making sure that they understand what this means. He's something more than even they had recognized. But then we've got another cool trick. Notice verse, what it says in verse 21. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So they didn't keep rowing. I mean, long before Scotty was ever beaming anybody up, right? I mean, Jesus had him go from one place to another. Like that. That's what it, I think that's exactly what it means. I think all of the sudden, with supernatural divine power, they were on the other side. All right, so why bring all this up? Because this is then the context of what's coming. Because it's the same group of people. So Jesus has fed 20,000 people. We're then on the next day, verse 22, on the following day when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one in which the disciples had entered. In other words, that they've, they've come back for, for breakfast, okay? All right, they've come back for more. Nobody's there. They see that a boat's gone to the other side. They're curious though. They, they saw the guys go, but they didn't see Jesus go. And so, you know, without getting into some of the details of, of exactly how this text is written, and there's that strange statement that he makes about there being other boats. Clearly, though, what John is saying is they knew how the disciples got over there, but they don't know how Jesus got over there. And so, verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got in the boats, came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus is not going to answer that question. This is now going to be an opportunity for Jesus to launch off into a fuller discussion about who he is. Now it's time to take the signs that he has performed going back even to the diseases that he healed, to the bread that he provided, and though they did not necessarily see uh, him walking on the water, we as readers and even as disciples then are, you know, are going to be given a fuller explanation of who he is, the fullness of his power, of his glory, and of his grace then being revealed and what he's about to say. And, and, and I want you to note here what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't answer the question. Jesus could have, right? Rabbi, how did you come to be here? I walked across the water. That'd been a pretty good answer, right? Because my guess is if you had done it, that's how you would have answered. It's how I would have answered. How'd you get here? I just walked on the water. That's what I did. No big deal. Just walked across. And the disciples saw it. I mean, if you want another sign, wouldn't that, wouldn't that have been an important way to say it? Don't you think that would have been the best way to say it? But he doesn't. 
Instead, Jesus takes an opportunity to more fully express how they've missed the point. They don't even understand their greatest need and takes an opportunity then to expound on what they really do need. And what they need is Jesus. So, so here, here's, here's what I want to do. I, I, we're, we're getting close, but I, I want to I then go ahead just for a little bit longer. Because now Jesus is going to, I think, identify three important features of his saving work. And you're going to fill in one blank. All right, this is it. We'll just fill in this first one. Three important features then of the saving work of Christ. Number one, the first thing Jesus is going to emphasize is that he is necessary for salvation. He is necessary for salvation. I'm guessing what what I'm saying here is not all that um, uh, controversial for for most people in the room. I mean, maybe maybe there's somebody in the room who, who might wonder about this, so let's just be really emphatic. No one is ever at any time and in any way made right with God apart from Jesus Christ. He is necessary. As I said last week, it's not that he's a good way to get saved. It's not that he's the best way to be saved. He is the one and only way of being made right with God. There is only one mediator between God and men, and that is the man Jesus Christ, right? It's the only way. And Jesus is going to emphasize this. So, so, so rather than answer their question, here's what he says. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, because you ate of the loaves and were filled. I love what Jesus does here, because there's a phrase that was used in two verses ahead of that, previously to that, that many modern evangelicals just fumble and stumble and fawn over, and they love to rip it out of context. Maybe you picked up on it. Verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Boy, the evangelical world loves that term. Those who would seek Jesus. In fact, I've even heard sermons on it. I've heard sermons out of this verse that clearly didn't read any other verses to follow, right? Because this is, this is not... This is not presented as a positive thing. These are not men and women who are truly interested in these great spiritual truths. These are not men and women of sincerity. It's not that they're being intentionally duplicitous or difficult. They're not being intentionally you know, snarky or harsh. They're not like the religious leaders. Nonetheless, they don't get it. And when it says they're seeking Jesus, this is not a positive thing. And I love then how Jesus responds to them. Because you know, there, there's, a, there's a strain of evangelicalism, church growth movement stuff that would encourage us to be seeker sensitive. Jesus is terrible at this. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus is terrible at it. What, what I mean is, now don't take that the wrong way, what I mean is Jesus is going to take these folks, he just did an amazing miracle, and now they're coming to him again. And rather than Jesus 
you know, kind of being subtle. The word today is winsome, all right? This is what I'm told today. I need to be winsome. That I need to be, you know, convincing and subtle and a little bit witty, which, you know, I'm witty, but, you know, but I need to be subtle and I need to talk to people in such a way so that they're not easily offended. You know, it's like trying to coax a squirrel to eat a nut out of my hand. I got to be real gentle and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to scare them away. What I love about how Jesus treats these who are seeking him, not only does he not care about scaring them away, you can tell by the end of the chapter, that's part of what he's trying to do. This is going to end with nearly all of them walking away from Jesus. What I love about this story is Jesus does not care about burning bridges or closing doors. He's not not interested in massaging the minds and hearts of his listeners. This is nothing but a theological punch to the gut. I'm going to identify in one sentence who you are and what your problem is. You only come not because you understood the sign. You come because your bellies were filled. That's why you came. And then he goes on to chastise them. Verse 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. I said, you've made a mistake. You think your next meal is the most important thing about your life. It's not. Your relationship with the Father is the most important thing. Whether or not you actually have life is the most important. Stop worrying about this, about laboring for that which only sustains you for a day in your life. You need to worry about the everlasting stuff. So he said, instead, labor for that which is everlasting. Now, Jesus is being provocative here, by the way, when he says this. He doesn't mean they literally need to work for their salvation. He knows what's coming. He knows how they're going to question what he has just said. And so after saying that, so don't labor for the food. Instead, you want that which brings everlasting life, that which the Son of Man will give. And so, he says, so they say, verse 28, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Reference here to works of God is probably the law. And so what they're asking for is, all right, what's your scheme and paradigm here, Jesus? What, in what way do I need to keep all of these laws in order to be right with God? What are the works that I need to work in order to get this everlasting food thing you're talking about. They still don't get it, right? They still don't understand. I mean, in the first case, what they think is, well, Jesus is only there to meet whatever needs they think. They they want him for what he can give them. No one ever treats Jesus like that today, right? Only wanting him for what he can give to them. It's a good thing as believers we don't ever do that to Jesus. Or do we run the risk of doing that very same thing every day, wanting him only because of what he gives? So so he, he knocks that out, but now what do they want? They want salvation on their terms. Tell me the works. All right, yeah? Let me get out my pen. All right, tell me. I'm ready. Just give me your list, all right? Okay, I mean, I want to know. Do I, so I, 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 I want to keep God's name, okay, all right, uh, Sabbath, good. Um, I'm not going to murder anybody, all right, great. Uh, I'm not going to try and steal stuff. I'm uh, going to be true to my spouse, going to honor-ish my parents, all right, great. Uh, maybe even throw a bowl on the altar every now and then. All right, great, got it. That's what they want. What are these works? Give me my list. 
Give me my things to do that I can check off at the end of the day. Isn't it amazing how humans have not changed? This is still what people want. They still want to know, what can I do? Give me my to-do list, and here's why they want it. Because they want to be able to get to the end of the day. I don't think anybody thinks that, by, that they can do good works perfectly. I think here's what people want. They want to be able to stack up just one more good work than bad. That's what they want from Jesus. Tell us what we got to do. Balance it out. Kind of get, get, get me up in the good graces of God, all right? In other words, i got to do all these things in order to get this right. So what works do I need to do? And Jesus then hits them with this, that next phrase, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. you got to love how Jesus does this, right? Fishes, catches, and reels, the way he did this whole thing. The way, the way he identifies them right at the beginning by saying, don't labor for this food, instead labor for everlasting life. He knew they were going to ask, all right, what, what kind of labor do we need to engage in? And Jesus is able to come right back and say, once again, you've missed the point. It's not about the works you work. It's about the work that God has already worked. That the labor required is not yours. The work that needs to happen is from God. And Jesus is very specific when he says this. This is the work of God that you believe. Here's what this means, church. This means not only is Jesus necessary for salvation, but the only way I get saved is by God doing the work in me that needs to be done to save me. Even believing. Even believing. Even having faith. Even my confession of the gospel itself, that's not something I do, that is something God enables. The work of God is that which enables me to believe. This again just emphasizes salvation involves no effort on my part. I don't earn it. I don't work for it. There's not a list of things I do, it is God's Work. And the language of believe, by the way, is important. This word believe does not mean just assenting intellectually to certain facts. The word believe here, especially used in John's context, it's one of his favorite words. To believe is to entrust yourself to another, to believe in, to entrust. So this is far more than simply saying, all right, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. I mean, yes, we've got to confess that. But this means entrusting myself to Christ. This means believing that God in Christ will and can save me. And that I can't save myself. What Jesus emphasizes here with these folks, He is what is necessary for salvation. And what they really need is not food of the earth. It's heavenly food. It's everlasting food. And that food is only found in Jesus Christ. There's no other way of being made right with God. Now, next week, we'll jump back in, all right? We'll keep fleshing out what this looks like. I know you're saying, Pastor, you're doing a series on I am statements. You haven't even gotten to an I am. All right, okay, fair enough. We will next week. But I do think at this point, though, we're given important information, truth, that even as believers, that we need to understand. 
I mean, we, we need to be mindful of the ways in which we can want Jesus for only what He can do for us. And we should be mindful of the ways in which we try and have Jesus on our own terms. We do this. We can be like this crowd. Even as believers, we can be like this crowd. Of course, I would remind anybody here who does not know Christ as Savior. Because I can't know every single heart that's in here. Maybe even the heart that's been coming for years and years. I don't know. To be saved, to be right with God, is to know and believe Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected for the forgiveness of sins. If you have never trusted in Christ, that is the means of salvation. It is necessary. You will not get to the end of your days and have more good works than bad. The Bible says you are dead in your trespasses and sin. What is it that dead people can do? Nothing. What is a dead person's greatest need? Life. Life. I can do nothing to save myself. But that's the bad news. The good news is Christ has done all that is necessary in order to save. And so by believing in the Son of God, whom God has sent, whose seal is upon him, I can be saved. If you've never trusted in Christ at the close of the service, I'll be down front. I'd love an opportunity to tell you more about what it means to believe in this gospel. To the believer, I know a lot of what I've shared is probably stuff you've heard many, many times. I know it has because I've preached it many times before. We must be on the lookout for the tendency in our own hearts to think we do not need the gospel preached to us after being saved. See, the truth is, I need the gospel each and every week. Not to save me again, but to remind me of what God has done. The farther away I get from the day that I trusted in Christ, the easier it can be to believe maybe I really wasn't as bad off as I thought I was back then. No, to come face to face with the glory of the gospel of Christ. To again, come face to face with what is my desperate need. I would encourage you, church, that you would spend time reflecting on what Christ has done because you needed it. It's not like you need less Jesus than even the vilest defender. You need just as much Jesus as the worst person you can think that's ever lived on the planet. No one needs less Jesus, no one needs more. But all of us need Him in order to be saved. And all of us then can live in faith and obedience to Him because of the good work He's accomplished for us. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. After I pray then, we will continue to sing and we will sing of the good work of our Savior holding us fast. Father God, we do thank you for the gathering of your church. We are grateful for the privilege of being in your word. We are thankful for the saving work of Christ. We do confess this, that we recognize Christ and Christ alone saves and that we needed that salvation. And we thank you for him giving that which is greater than even the food that we eat. And our greatest need is being made right with you. And I pray, God, that we would continue to grow in our understanding of what is the goodness of your saving work to us in Christ. And that as we grow in our understanding of Christ, that then we would grow as disciples, faithfully reflecting him to a world that needs this Savior. We pray, God, you would bring your word to bear on our lives, that, that it might be used to continue to make us like Christ, that we might live for your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.